I'm on the green. There we go. All right. Well, good morning. Can I, if I scoot up in front of this, will I still get caught on the camera? Yeah, I'll. Okay. You all are sitting far back and you thought you could, you know, distance yourself, but I can move with this thing. Um, it's good to be back, everybody. Uh, so since we were here almost exactly one year ago, uh, our family has multiplied. So we had twins back in July, Jubilee and Jethro. They're almost eight months old, I guess. Uh, my hair is grayer. My waistline is thicker. Those three things may be related. Um, so uh, let's see. Do you all stand for the reading of the word here? Okay, I would like you, if you would please stand, and um, this is good uh, both for respect and it keeps our blood flowing so we can uh, keep listening. Does everybody have a handout or access to one? I'll be doing some selected readings from Exodus 20, Psalm 69, and uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Let's give our attention as this is God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Jesus, um, during our time here now in your word, would you uh, help us to sit under your word and to receive the instruction you have for us, even when it's hard? Uh, But more than that, uh, more than your instruction, more even than your example, uh, we pray that you would give more of yourself to us uh, by your spirit, that we would draw closer to you. Uh, be safer in you, and be strengthened uh, in the grace and salvation that you have given to us. We pray this, Jesus, for your sake and your glory. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple of years ago, I was asked to write an article defending the work of a former pastor in our denomination uh, who had written a book on his same-sex attraction and what it looked like for him to live a faithful life of obedience to Jesus. 
Um, sadly, his faithful obedience made him the target of many attacks and slander in our denomination. And so when I was asked to write this piece defending his work, I knew that I would likely come under the same kind of fire, but I was convinced, you know, that's the right thing to do to defend this man and what he has written. And so I went ahead and uh, wrote this article to defend what he had written. And even though I was assured that uh, the men who asked me to write the piece would come to my defense, and even though I knew that I would likely be attacked in similar ways that this man had himself been attacked, I still found myself uh, surprised and a little bit dumbfounded by the manner in which those attacks came. At no point was I ever, uh, did I ever receive a phone call or an email from anyone who had taken issue with what I had written. No one ever reached out to me to ask, hey, can I try to understand a little bit better the perspective from which you are coming from? Instead, in the months or I guess weeks that followed after I'd written this article, I received several screenshots uh, from a private Facebook group of pastors and elders who took my name to task uh, about what I had written uh, defending this man. And so from behind closed doors, I saw that uh, men who have taken vows to uphold the peace and purity of the church, behind these closed doors, they called me childish. They called me soft. They said I wasn't a serious thinker, that I had not been properly trained for the work of ministry. My personal information about me and my ministry was put forward for all to see so they could see who I was, where I was, and learn information about my life. And of course, the men who asked me to write the article, who I assumed and was assured would be there to defend my name and my honor, were nowhere to be found. And my name was drugged through the mud, and I wasn't there to defend it. I'll be brief and say that there were a lot of things going on in my heart at that time. I knew, though, that I had been sinned against, and yet I was lacking the vocabulary to exactly say how I had been sinned against. I had a sense that what was happening to me were violations of the Ninth Commandment, that somehow people were using their words to gossip about me, but I still couldn't quite be articulate about what exactly was happening to me. And I knew that the Scriptures had something to say about this. I knew that even my Reformed tradition had something to say about the Ninth Commandment and how serious it was, and yet I had never given myself seriously to its study. And so I decided finally, maybe I can figure out what has been happening to me. If I go and study, what do the scriptures say? What does my, even, my, even my own tradition say about the ninth commandment? And I can tell you that in the last two years, uh, nothing has been more transformative for my walk with Jesus than studying this commandment. I have been validated in being given language for the ways in which that I was hurt, being able to express specifically the ways that I was hurt, and not just in this instance, but throughout my life, the way that people have hurt me. And yet at the same time, I was also deeply convicted because I saw all of the ways that I had broken this commandment and that I was guilty of doing the same things often that people had done to me. And so that's how we got here this morning. I want to speak to you about the importance of the Ninth Commandment. And while I will offer general comments about the Ninth Commandment, what I really want to drill down to is what does this, require, this commandment require of us when we have been wounded, when we have been hurt, when others have violated this commandment 
against us. Because isn't it the case that when we are wounded, we often want to take justice into our own hands? And what's one of the easiest ways for us to do that? Right here, right? We go around and we go behind other people's backs. We try to get everyone around us to agree with the ways that we have been hurt and to turn against the person who has hurt us. We exaggerate, exaggerate someone's flaws to try and make everyone else see how bad this person is. In short, we use our words in all sorts of ways to try and cut down the person in retaliation for the ways that they have hurt us. So there's a lot here for us in this commandment. Not just in what we should or should not do, but in how we can become more like Jesus. I've tried to group the instruction for us this morning under three headings. First, the requirements of this commandment. Second, the sins of this commandment. And third, the courage it takes to keep this commandment. So the requirements, the sins, and the courage it takes to keep this commandment. First, requirements. Um, I don't know if you have ever given serious consideration to what is required of us. Uh, by God in the ninth commandment, but I'm guessing, chances are that if you have, you have probably minimized the full scope of what is required of us here in the ninth commandment. One way we could do this is by limiting the breadth of maybe what God is requiring for us here, and so we might think, well, I'm commanded to tell the truth, I'm not to tell lies, so as long as I, you know, do my best with my tongue and just keep my mouth shut at other times, I'm good. Like, if I hear misinformation, I'll just stay out of it. I didn't say it, so I'm off the hook. Or if I hear someone else being slandered, well, I didn't say that, so I'm off the hook. I just got to keep my mouth shut. I'll stay out of it. As long as I do my best with the words that I do speak, I'm good. Yet the problem with that perspective is this commandment isn't about you. It's about your neighbor. The ninth commandment requires more of us than just staying out of it. The ninth commandment requires a total commitment to the truth for the sake of our neighbor, even when it's hard. Or maybe we think about that old schoolyard proverb, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. And so maybe we think, as long as I don't say hard things, as long as I'm nice, I'm good. I'm keeping the commandment. And yet, isn't it the case that sometimes being nice, like trying to be nice all the time, might mean that we're just a flatterer? We're flattering people, giving them an exaggerated view of themselves. But you know what that is? That's a kind of lie. It's distorting the truth. Or maybe we say, oh, I don't want to say hard things to someone. I don't want to hurt their feelings, and so I'm just not going to go there with people. But if you're not willing to say hard things to people, if you're not willing to tell them the truth, even if it might hurt them a little bit, that also is a kind of lie. It is a distortion, an unwillingness to speak the truth when we are required to speak the truth. And so both of these ideas are a gross distortion of what God requires of us us in the ninth commandment. At their root, both lines of thought are about self-preservation. What is the minimum required of me in order to keep this commandment? But the call of God for us in the ninth commandment is a maximal commitment to the truth, both for God's sake and the sake of our neighbor's. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These familiar words that begin the Ten Commandments serve to remind us that really at their root, the Ten Commandments are about who God is. Each of the commandments tell us something important about who God is and therefore what he then requires of us. And the scriptures are clear that God does not 
He cannot lie. He is the fountain. He is the embodiment of the truth. And so we cannot be those who claim God's name and at the same time be those who cover up, who conceal, or who distort the truth. And the ninth commandment also does not stop with these words, you shall not bear false testimony. The thought is completed with against your neighbor. And so it is not just for God's sake, it is for our neighbor's sake that we are to tell the truth. And so here is the really touchy thing about this commandment. Our neighbors, even the ones that we don't like, have a right to having the truth spoken about them. More than that, they have a right against us to our telling the truth about them. And we have an obligation to bear the truth for our neighbor to the best of our ability. We might even use the language that this is an inherent human right to the truth. The Westminster Larger Catechism, I'm sure if you've been around for a little bit, that Josh has mentioned it before. I love the catechism um, in uh, how thorough it is, and especially the section on the Ten Commandments, uh, the way that they show the breadth of the commandments of what God requires for us with not just specific language, but also scripture citations, so we can see the full breadth of what the scriptures communicate on each of the commandments. And I want to uh, invite you to turn to the back side of your um, sheet of paper here where I have the two questions in the Westminster Larger Catechism which speak to the requirements of the Ninth Commandment. Look here at this first paragraph, question 144. What are the duties? What are the requirements of the Ninth Commandment? It's the preserving and promoting of truth in our relationships. The good name of our neighbor as well as our own. It's a standing for the truth from the heart, freely, clearly, and fully, especially and even in matters of justice and judgment and in the courts. It's in all things. There's a charitable esteem of our neighbor. It's, it's thinking the best about our neighbors. It's a rejoicing in their good name. It's a sorrowing for, it's a covering for of their infirmities. It's a you know, love covering a multitude of sins. It's an acknowledging of what is good and beautiful about them. It's a readiness to defend their innocency, innocency a, a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to hear, I don't want to hear bad things if I don't need to about people. We discourage slander. We discourage empty flattery. There's even a willingness to defend ourselves. Sometimes we feel bad about defending our name. No, we're required to. There's a keeping of lawful promises and a studying and practicing of whatever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Comprehensive list, huh? Listen to the words of the 20th century theologian and ethicist Lewis Smedes who summarized the teaching of the Ninth Commandment this way. He said, in it, we are obligated, quote, to come to the defense of people whose lives are hurt by gossip, innuendo, and rumor. When we hear a story that demeans or maligns another person, we need to expose it. When we are privy to slander, we must refute it. When our friends pass along half-truths that distort the image of another person, we must supply the other half if we can. We must, in short, expend ourselves to protect people from untruth about themselves. This is the work of love, for love not only rejoices in truth for one's own self, but protects the truth for others, end quote. This means we cannot keep quiet. When we hear falsehood, when we hear slander, when we hear misinformation, we cannot keep quiet. 
The ninth commandment is a call to justice for our sake and the sake of our neighbor. And so in the workplace, when you hear a coworker being slandered, you can't just let it go. God is requiring of you that you speak up for your coworker. And your family, when there's a sibling or a parent or a cousin who's being piled on, it is a readiness to defend them if they're not present. In our churches, we are responsible for telling the truth about each other and to each other. We are responsible for speaking up for others in their absence. We ought to rejoice in the good name of our brothers and sisters and be really, really, really on guard about receiving ill reports of our brothers and sisters, especially when we have no reason to hear it. Now, if you think about it, the Ninth Commandment is really the foundation of a healthy society. Society cannot function unless the people who reside there are keeping this commandment. Amen to that. Here's a great example of uh, what that death looks like. A funny example, actually, from this last week. Did you all hear about the, the Willy Wonka thing in Scotland? If you haven't, hilarious, right? So these kids, they're promised that they're going to come and get like these optical illusions that are like, going to amaze and astound, uh, like Wonka-themed, right? Some of these kids are driving from like hours away, and they come, and it's like scary actors a bounce house, an empty warehouse, and one jelly bean. It's the one jelly bean that kills me, right? <laughs> it's what, can you imagine being these kids, like, I will never trust an adult ever again, right? I will never trust a fun thing ever again, right? Because it's a total breakdown at that point of, like, the truth was not told, and it's like a total betrayal of the relationship. You can't have a healthy relationship, you can't have a healthy society without this commandment being kept. You can't have a healthy marriage a healthy family, a healthy neighborhood, healthy politics, healthy government, healthy churches, healthy businesses, unless the truth is being preserved. But the importance of this commandment goes beyond the practical. Because God is a God of truth and our neighbors have inherent God-given rights to the truth being spoken about them, we must keep this commandment. Which gets to second, the sins of this commandment. I'm going to press in further here. Because at no point... Are we ever let off the hook in the keeping of this commandment? Even when we ourselves have been wounded in the violation of others of the ninth commandment. So I've recently been rereading, reading for the first time, the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis to my kids at night. And uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story, but in case you're not, it's this series about five-ish kids who are whisked away uh, to the land of Narnia, where it's ruled by the great lion Aslan, and it's constantly under the, the attack of evil forces, right? We're reading the book Prince Caspian right now, and towards the end of the book, maybe two-thirds in, there's this wonderful scene uh, uh, between Aslan and the youngest child, Lucy. Uh, Aslan asks Lucy... Uh, to perform the impossibly difficult task of convincing our older siblings that he has, in fact, returned to Narnia when nobody else can see him yet. And if you know the books, uh, Lucy already, she's protesting this, and, and you can feel her pain in this because throughout the books, the older siblings never trust Lucy. They always think she's fabricating the truth. And so she's protesting to Aslan, I can't do this, they're not going to believe me, and then she starts to slander her siblings. 
but she's interrupted by what is described as the faintest suggestion of a growl welling up from inside Aslan. Now, at several points in the books, the children, they doubt Aslan, they go against him, they even betray him, and yet he is always gracious and kind and forgiving to them. The only time, as far as I can remember, that he ever demonstrates anything like anger toward the children is when Lucy begins to slander her siblings. Proverbs 6 says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. See, the surest way for us to wound our neighbors, the easiest way to tear apart the new human community that Jesus is building, the most public way to dishonor God's name in the world is by violating the ninth commandment. That's why he hates it. He hates it. I said a few minutes ago that I think we are most tempted to break the ninth commandment when we ourselves have been wronged. And so lying about others, slandering them, spreading reports about them is one of the easiest ways for us to get our revenge and defend ourselves when we have been wronged. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we can elevate ourselves by cutting others down in retaliation and that somehow we are off the hook for it because we were the ones who were hurt first. Friends, this is evil. Look at question 145. Again, the words of the Catechism that break down the breadth of how we can violate this commandment. I don't have time to read this paragraph this time, but let me try and draw out a few themes for us that we see here and how we can violate the Ninth Commandment. First, even thinking about someone improperly, not according to the truth. Even in our own thoughts, when we entertain the ill reputation of others, when we rejoice in the downfall of others, even in our own hearts, we are sinning against our neighbors. What does this look like? Have you ever rehearsed a fight in your head that hasn't happened yet? Amen. Okay, so I'm not alone. Good. I thought I would have to convince you all that you do this, but I don't. Right? Like this imaginary argument where you finally get to say to someone all the things that you want to say, but you're too afraid to say in person. And what inevitably happens in those imaginary arguments is we start making accusations against this person, right? You did this, you did that. How dare you do this to me? But do you see what that is? That is a rejoicing in the faults of others. It is an entertaining the faults of others. It's nursing their sins in your heart. And do you know what this does to us? It makes us more inclined to believe the worst in someone and to receive the worst reports about someone rather than to believe the best about them. It closes our hearts to them. It's a sin against the ninth commandment. It's not just in our thoughts, though. It's how we use our words. Speaking about someone untruthfully, magnifying their faults while ignoring the full picture about someone, an unnecessary seeking about, out of their faults so we can tell everybody else about it. Anything that we might do that wrongfully harms the reputation or good name of someone else. 
And here's where meditation on this commandment has really hit home for me. So my wife and I, we are both adult converts to Christianity. And in our first three churches together um, as a couple, we were wounded deeply, hurt deeply uh, by the leaders over us who, because of their errors, because of their sins, even because of their abuses, uh, deeply, deeply hurt us. And there was one leader in particular who did a great deal of damage to me, slandered me, talked about me behind my back, uh, made me just feel pathetic all of the time. But you know what? I often did the same things to him in return. And let me be clear for a minute. I'm not saying in this situation that a person with more power, the sins of the person with more power are equal to the sins of the person with less power. I think the scriptures are clear. I think the catechism is clear on the fifth commandment that those in a relationship with more power are responsible if they provoke those with less power to anger or bitterness or wrath or retaliation. There is a responsibility there. And yet at the same time, my sins in return are just that. They are sin. I believed that his wounding me somehow validated my response and exempted me from culpability, and so I entertained his faults to anybody who would listen. I sought out and dwelled on his faults to others in order to validate how I felt and how I had been hurt. I was guilty of backbiting and cutting him down often when he was not in the room. I thought that I could validate my, my pain, that I would find healing for my pain if I could get everyone else to agree with me about how awful that he was. But you know what? Doesn't work. The only thing it did for me was make me more angry, more bitter, more depressed. And that bled over into all sorts of other areas in my life. Just ask my wife. Do you remember how James talks about this in his epistle, chapter 3? He talked about the tongue being powerful enough to direct our whole body that it is like a flame that can set our whole lives ablaze. I hear people say things like this all the time where they say, you know, I'm not going to be like those people. I'm not going to be like that person. And of course, inevitably, what's behind that is I'm not going to be like the person or the people who hurt me. But what's often behind those resolutions that we make? The pain that we're feeling. The anger that we are feeling. And if the power you are seeking for change is pain and anger rather than a positive vision that can actually heal your heart, then you are going to end up just like the person who hurt you. Absolutely you are. You see, in a way, the Ninth Commandment actually isn't just about our neighbor. It's about protecting our own hearts from being corrupted when we've been wronged and when we've been sinned against. Which leads me to the third theme you'll see here in question 145. In the pursuit of justice, we are never permitted to pursue justice with unjust means. You can see the importance here of telling the truth in legal matters, promoting the truth in a just cause, or even prejudicing the truth, um, uh, sorry, prejudicing the truth and justice by the way that we speak. In the pursuit of justice, we are never allowed to pursue it with unjust means. 
Dr. King would hit on this theme often when he would teach on his philosophy of nonviolence. He would often teach in one way or another that in the face of injustice, the only weapon a Christian has is love. He taught that we cannot give in to bitterness or hate or retaliation, and the reason for that, he said, was because that when we do so, we are only multiplying the injustice in the world. And so if in the cause of justice for ourselves or for our neighbors, we ever allow our hearts to be corrupted, if we ever allow ourselves to utilize lies, slander, and backbiting to achieve what we consider to be just ends, then we are actually only, minimize, or only multiplying the amount of injustice and anger in the world. I'm going to give an important qualification here. I'm not at all saying that we do not defend ourselves when we have been wronged. You see here, that is a violation of the Ninth Commandment as well. We are required to defend ourselves. Nor am I saying that we should never report abuse or anything like that in case we violate the Ninth Commandment. I'm not saying that either. That if we don't speak the truth about what has been happened, what has happened, we don't speak the truth about the wrongs that are occurring, that also is a violation of the Ninth Commandment. What I am saying is that how we pursue justice for ourselves or our neighbors matters as much as that we pursue justice for ourselves or our neighbors. I'm going to say that again. How we pursue justice matters as much as that we pursue justice. Our character and our means go hand in hand. Someone recently asked me, what is the, vis- what is the difference between a secular vision for social justice and a Christian vision for social justice? I think there's a lot of important philosophical ways that you could answer that question, but perhaps the most, I think, significant practical difference a secular vision of justice and a Christian vision for justice is the emphasis on the character of the one striving for justice. Jesus will not allow us to retaliate in kind, to defend ourselves or to defend our neighbor through vengeance. Even when we've been wronged, our words still matter. And we ought always to strive for the truth and to tell the truth and only the truth about our neighbor, even if they have not treated us with the same respect. So, How are we feeling about keeping the Ninth Commandment? John Calvin said something to the effect of, who is is innocent of the poison that we see here? Who is actually, the answer is nobody. Nobody is innocent of this. We all feel this pull into tearing, especially when we've been wronged, to tearing others down in the name of defending our neighbor or ourselves. We're sick with the poison, and it is hard to keep this commandment. So where do we find the courage to keep the commandment? Because it does take courage, right? It's not just strength. It's a kind of resiliency to be able to do the hard thing, to say and speak the hard thing, to be committed to the truth, even when our circumstances and our desires point us in the exact opposite direction. Where do we find that courage from? Two things, and I'm done. First, it's the validation that we get here in the Ninth Commandment. And second, it's in discovering that we receive God himself in the Ninth Commandment. So, look briefly with me at Psalm 69. The validation we get in the Ninth Commandment. This is such a great prayer to pray when we have been hurt by someone else's words. Look at the language that the psalmist uses here in Psalm 69. It's scorn. It's disgrace, it's shame, 
It's being mocked. It's the loneliness of having no one there who will defend you and comfort you and come to your defense. It's even, verse 20, experiencing a broken heart on account of someone else's words. This is really how the playground taunt ought to go, you know. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart, right? See, the ninth commandment validates all the ways that we have been hurt. And if we are going to heal from the ways that others wound us, we need specific language that names how exactly we have been hurt. It's like when you go to a doctor's office and you have the flu or you have cancer or whatever may be wrong with you, you don't want to walk into the doctor's office and say, oh yeah, you hurt. Well, yeah, I know I hurt, but like, how do I hurt? I want to get better from how I hurt. I hope some do. But the ninth commandment tells us specifically, you have been hurt and here's how. Your pain is valid and here's why. Your wounds are valid. You don't need to keep them in the dark. You can bring them out into the light. You can name them, and God cares about the specifics. He does. There's a validation there, a healing that even comes from knowing, I can name how I've been hurt. But keep going in Psalm 69. Verse 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now, who does, who does that sound like? So who's the author of Psalm 69? Who knows the pain of Psalm 69 more than anyone else? Who knows what it's like to be scorned, mocked, abandoned, to receive all the violations of the ninth commandment in abundance? Jesus does. 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was violated, no sin came from his mouth. He didn't retaliate in kind. He didn't threaten. He trusted himself to God. Why? Because it was easy? Because it was the right thing to do? No. So that he could bear our sins. So that in the keeping of the ninth commandment, we would be able to receive God himself. We receive the shepherd. We receive the overseer. Because Jesus was faithful to this commandment intensely until the very end. And so is keeping this commandment hard? Absolutely. Is it painful to admit when we have broken this commandment to somebody else? Oh, yeah. Is it scary to confess? Yes. But if you know that God is for you, if you know you get God himself because he himself has kept the commandment to the very end for your sake, then isn't that a kind of safety? Isn't that a kind of courage Isn't that strength? So you can trust your reputation to the Lord when you have been hurt rather than responding in kind. His validation heals our wounds. It's not the negative vision of cutting everyone else down where we will find our healing. It's his wounds that will heal us. That's where we find the strength. That's where we find the validation. That's where we find the courage even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when everything else around us tells us, go the other way. We can be with Jesus to the end. Let's pray. Jesus, we do look not just to your example. Your example alone would not be enough 
to give us what we need to obey this commandment. But instead, we take encouragement from the fact that we get you. We get you. Because in the face of being scorned and mocked and beaten and abandoned and being made to be alone, you kept this commandment to the very end because of your heart and your love for us. And so we look to that and we say that that is the safety we need. That's the courage we need. It's the strength that we need. And I pray that in that, that those here, even right now this morning, who are dealing with the wounds of a broken heart because of the ways that others have spoken about them, that you would give them the courage needed to stick close to this commandment and that you would heal their hearts of the pain they have experienced. Jesus, heal our tongue, heal our hearts. For your sake and your glory. Amen.